Jax has been golfing recently. And Jeff, I, I, I mean, I, okay, let's put this in perspective. How long have you actually been golfing? Has it been a year yet? No, less than a year. Okay, less than a year. Now, my buddy Jeff over there at Golf Tech, who's, I mean, that's my, that's my golf teacher. He would be, he would be cursing at the car if he, if he thought that I was trying to give out golf advice, cause he's seen my swing enough times. He's like, there, you don't, that's the blind leading the blind, son. You don't get to go ahead and give off advice. I'm having a bunch of fun though. So Jax is giving me a swing and, uh, and like he's got it recorded and everything. And, and cause I, again, I went off the show talking about how basically if I had a normal nine to five job, I would have played hooky today. Hundred percent. I don't play hooky in, in life, but if I had a job I didn't care about and a job that I didn't really like, I would have played hooky today. I would have definitely been on the golf course. I wouldn't have even thought twice about it. The weather's too nice. This is the, this will be the first golfing weekend of the season coming up this weekend. I'll be out on the course on Saturday. Haven't decided yet where I'm going to play. Going to book the tee time tomorrow. And then Jax was like, oh, yeah, I made it out to the driving range the other day. I said, well, how'd it go? And I know Jax has only been playing for a year. And if you've only been playing for a year, really just getting the ball up in the air consistently is enough of an accomplishment, okay? Like, I, it's funny. My, my older brother was in town. A couple weekends ago, and my older brother knows I'm obsessed with golf now, and and he's like, yeah, I was, uh, you know, we went to one of the top golfs in uh, Kansas City, and he's like, oh, I had a blast. And I said, yeah, it's a fun time. I'm like, I like golf, it's good. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he goes, I want to get into it. And I said, oh, that's great. You want to get into it? I love that. We can go golfing together when I go to Kansas City. It'll be great. My little brother golfs, so you know, we go anyway. And he goes, ah, yeah, that'd be funny. He goes, how long will it take me to get good? And I'm like, well, I've been golfing for like five years and I'm not considered good. Like, I mean, I, you can, hey, there's people that golf for 25 years that are considered good. And hell, if anybody wants to tell you they're good at golf, that's not the right attitude. Okay. It's not, it's just not one of those things. And he goes, well, how long would it take me to get where I can consistently hit the ball up in the air and not make a fool out of myself? And I'm like, well, it's going to take you a couple of years. Like, it's not, it's not the type of sport that you just get to do right away. And it's, it's the type of sport that there's very few people out there. That are just naturally good at it because everything is so counterintuitive and it doesn't make actual sense. And, you know, you know, there's some sports I've known these people. You've known these people, how you might be one of those people where, you know, I hadn't played a softball game in a decade. Roll up to the park, 16 inch softball, 12 inch softball, doesn't matter. They're the best player on the field. And they just it's just obvious. Those guys that are just extremely athletic. Play volleyball once a decade. They show up to the volleyball courts, and all of a sudden, they look like uh, they they belong in the ATP uh, tour. You know what I mean? Like those, those type of guys. Those guys struggle with golf. Those guys don't exist in the golf world where you're just naturally good at it. But anyway, Jax was sending me the video, and I'm giving him advice. And I don't know. Your buddy was telling you about your hips. I think that was awful advice. I think you just come over come over the top, which makes a lot of sense because it's what a lot of amateurs do in the golf game, and. Uh, I did at least sound like I knew what I was talking about when I'm giving the advice. Yeah, it sounded like you knew what you're talking about. Hey, good. Jeff at Golf Tech will be very happy with me then. If it just if it just sounds like I know what I'm talking about, I so I tell you what, I do these lessons and uh, and he's such a great teacher and he's made me much better at my golf game. I, I encourage any of you guys to go check him out at, at Golf Tech or really any of the Golf Tech coaches. I, they'll they'll fit what you need and they're good. He just, he just, he analyzes everything in such a way that I love. I just, I love it. Cause I, I love analyzing things. And this is, it's part of the sports world that I enjoy. If, if I grew up, so when I grew up, I played baseball and I was a bowler. And the only type of advanced technology we had with either, like when I, when I played baseball, I'll never forget it. I went to a, a guy named Eric Pappas. He was a minor league baseball player. He played for the Cubs for a little bit, the Cardinals for a little bit, cup of coffee, right? He had a, he had a baseball facility in Chicago and I went and did lessons with him. 
And it was at the time when he was trying to teach all his students that you need to hit down on the baseball. Well, we know that now is completely wrong, right? But like, we didn't have the data attached to any of it to be like, oh, yeah, hit up on the ball and the ball goes really far. It's like what they, it's like the first thing they teach you in like seventh grade now when you're doing baseball. Hit up on the ball, ball goes far. But this guy Eric was like hit down on the ball, and we had just I'm speaking to the the lack of data we had to be able to tell anybody anything. And he was convinced. He's like, yeah, hit down on the ball, line drives. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I've been hitting up on the ball for a very long time, hitting a lot of home runs. But I just had this blind faith in him because he played in Major League Baseball, and I'm like, all right, let's do it. And it just, it just completely killed my baseball career. Bowling. There's so many things with bowling that I would have loved to have gone to like these Kegel training centers and all this stuff. And, and they, they put all these sensors on you and they tell you your rev rate and they tell you everything that you need to know about, uh, what you're doing on the lanes and what you're not doing on the lanes. And I'm like, when I grew up with it, I just looked and saw what happened to my bowling ball and I looked and watched what happened to the pins and that's as good as I got. That was the, that was all the data I got is did it hit it right or did it not hit it right? It's like little things like that that just kept popping up over and over and over again. And now it's so different. And I don't know how I would be as a kid in today's world because I know what happened with me with golf. At about, I've told this story before. I'm 34 years old, about 29, 30 years old. My my brother-in-law, he went to Duke to get his MBA. And he went to Duke to get his MBA. And he got really into golf because he knew with getting an MBA that like golf in that world was going to be big. You know, the business world. You want to golf, it looks good, you can go out and golf with clients and such. You want to know what you're doing. And so we started taking lessons and we went to the range one day and I hadn't played golf in a decade. And I just I just I was like, This is awesome. This is so much fun. I gotta do I gotta do more of this. And it just turned into a thing that I really like to do. And I know now with the YouTube videos and all the different data and, and places like golf tech, you just become obsessed with with the swing, and you become obsessed with all the data points and finding out the different parts of your swing, and it's just night and day than what it was. And I always think about what I would be like as, like, a 10-year-old growing up now trying to play sports and how obsessed I'd be with, like, club speed and then swing speed and then all the different data points that you can come up with, and it's just night and day. It's just totally different. So I don't know. I know a lot of useless golf information that's never going to help me out in life ever, except for the random times... That Jax is like, hey, hey, you've been doing this a little bit longer than I have. Can you help me out here? And I'm like, yes, I can. I'm all but giving him lessons uh, right here in the studio. I'm going to break down. He doesn't realize it. In between the next break, we're going to have an imaginary club out there. We're going to go through We're gonna go through the swing. We're going to get Jax to be a pretty good golfer by the end of the night. All right, 216-474-0092. I want to ask you guys if you think the combine matters. We'll get to the backup quarterback coming up in about 15 minutes. What to do with DTR? Why I'm not high on DTR? And I have a Zedaria Smith theory I need to get off my chest as well. But I'm done understanding the combine. The coaches aren't even going to this thing. It sounds like a booze fest for people more than it is anything productive. It's as much of a boondoggle as when people do deals on the golf course that I was just talking about and they write it off for their taxes. It's as much of a boondoggle as that. Now, I don't know how Indy ended up being the place because you can find St. Elmo's cocktail shrimp sauce anywhere. I promise you, uh, and people talk about it like it's a one-of-one. One. I can find you a shrimp cocktail somewhere in Las Vegas that comes somewhere close to what St. Elmo's is doing. I promise you I can. But everyone goes to uh, Indy every single year, and they just drink a ton. Like I was hearing Peter King on an interview earlier today. Peter King doing his retirement tour. And it was on 670 The Score, our sister station in Chicago with Danny Parkins and Matt Spiegel. 
It's like, all right, you going to the combine? He's like, well, no, no. And part of the reason why I announced my retirement is because I hate going to the combine. He's like, we stay up till one thirty in the morning. You got a cocktail in your hand and you're just schmoozing people. That's all it is. Like, what exactly are they doing at the combine? And I think something happened last year that might have changed the combine forever. C.J. Stroud took his score, his S2 score, and, you know, it's supposed to be an aptitude test. It's supposed to tell people basically how smart C.J. Stroud is or isn't, and he didn't do a particularly good job at it. He had a really low score. They're not supposed to get leaked out, but they always get leaked out. And you watch and saw the season that C.J. Stroud had, and you're like, wait, the Panthers talked themselves out of C.J. Stroud into Bryce Young based off of something that happened at the Combine, and it has drastically altered the whole entire trajectory of that franchise for the next 15 years, both of these franchises. It has changed football for the next 15 years based off of something that happened at the Combine, and I think that was a big knock on the Combine moving forward. Matt LaFour is not there. Sean McVay is not there. Robert Sala. Not there as well. All these coaches deciding they don't want to be at the Combine. And I think what's happening here is pretty obvious. They'd rather watch what these guys did on the football field. Why is it they got to a point at the Combine where they cared more about C.J. Stroud's S2 score than they did on what happened against Georgia? How is that a world that we lived in? Shouldn't they have done the homework and simply looked at it and been like, oh, against Georgia, he looked like one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen. Yeah, maybe Ryan Day held him back a little bit all throughout the regular season. But against Georgia, he let him be unleashed and he looked like a premier talent. Maybe we should go with that guy. You get to the combine and all of a sudden half these guys aren't even, uh, they're not even doing the drills. They're not even throwing. They're going to be at the pro day. What, what, what good is the combine at this point? I understand it. Listen, the NFL needs... They need us talking about it, right? They need you to not forget about the NFL. They needed a tentpole event that happens at some point before the draft. So you basically get everybody in football all in one place, and you can generate content, you can generate discussion. And so for me, for instance, when I talk about what happened with Andrew Barry at the Combine, it doesn't seem like a reach to have a Nick Chubb discussion because Andrew Barry talked about it earlier today. And, and like Kevin Stefanski will talk tomorrow, and it's going to be two days' worth of content and it's going to keep the NFL for the entire week into our lives. Okay, great. Maybe that was necessary 25 years ago, 20 years ago. But if you looked around, do you know what sports radio is these days? Sports radio is 80% NFL as it is. We don't need another reason to be talking about the NFL when we already have more than enough reasons to talk about the NFL. You know, if Matt Eberflus... And Ryan Poles talk about Justin Fields. Does that really change our conversation around Justin Fields versus Caleb Williams? Probably not. We're having the conversations anyway. Hell, Ryan Poles spoke today. I spent two hours on CBS Sports Radio on Saturday night talking about the same topic that Ryan Poles talked about today. It didn't give anyone any more ammunition. We talked about the topics we were going to talk about. We talked about the interesting storylines anyway. So, So what exactly are we getting from the draft combine? Every now and then you get a draft combine star, right? Someone like Anthony Richardson that just tested off the charts. He, he broke every combine record you could imagine as far as for the vertical, as far as for uh, uh, different things in regards to quarterback athleticism. 
He was incredible. He was a draft darling, and his stock rose up. Sure. Every now and then you have a guy like that. But if I'm looking at a tight end and what happens in a a T-shirt and underwear, and I'm going from a third-round selection to a first-round selection based off of what he does at the combine and not what he does on the football field, I feel like I got this thing backwards. Shouldn't Shouldn't I realize whatever Mel Kuyper's hairspray puts out there at the end of the college football season, shouldn't that be what's good enough? Between that and Todd McShay and everyone else, shouldn't that be a good starting point? And then you kind of look around and, and you go from where they are to then three months later when no games happen and the only thing that happens in between is the combine and it looks like it's night and day and it's like, what happened here? How did this go down this way? And it doesn't make sense to me. I am ready for the combine to cease to exist. And I know it won't go down that way because it's not how the NFL works. The NFL has got something we pay attention to. The NFL understands that this is something that happens between the draft and the end of the season. But listen, they've made adjustments. The Pro Bowl and the Pro Bowl weekend looks nothing like it did five years ago. I, I will give the NFL credit that when they need to, they will understand when something doesn't make sense anymore. And I wonder if the NFL will get to a point when they look around this weekend and they see all the top 10 players not doing any of these drills. And the only thing they're doing is the 15 minute interviews with all these teams where they ask them really stupid questions like, if you were a giraffe, what type of giraffe would you be? And it's like, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Polka dot underwear or striped underwear. I don't know. I've never thought about that. It's like, what are we doing here? Why are we wasting our time? And then they have three or four interviews that actually matter. Like, I, we're, we are at a point where the combine likely has seen the end of it actually mattering. All right, leave that there. We come on back. Zach Jackson was on earlier today and talked about the backup quarterback conversation and talked about what he believes will happen when it comes to DTR. I agree 100%. I don't know that you guys will. You'll hear from Zach Jackson and more. Plus, I have a Zedarius Smith theory. I'm going to get off my chest coming up at 840, 216-474 to below 92. It's overtime with Jonathan Peterman here with you on the fan. But, uh, Jax, tell me where I'm wrong here. I don't think... I don't think surge pricing is a bad thing in life in general for us. I think it just forces people to do things at different hours. And I don't know. You want to, I think this is going to be great for getting the lines down at fast food places, maybe not having the drive throughs as long. Cause there'll be enough cheap people like myself that will not, well, I will never go to a Wendy's at six o'clock if I know a cheeseburger is at its highest price at six. Yeah. I always eat dinner pretty early too. I feel like, like four, like you said, four fifteen. Yeah. So hell, I might eat it at four fifteen even on days where I'm off and can eat it at yeah. six o'clock. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that thing in four fifteen and wait two hours if that's what I have to do. Surge pricing isn't going to get me. I'll never forget the, uh, one time I did surge pricing with an Uber on New Year's Eve. I lived in Houston. And all my buddies came into Houston for the weekend, and and we ended up, and it, it was it was a, oh boy, what a crazy night it was. I I spent so much money on these tickets, but like my buddies, they flew in and everything, and so you know it's what you do, right? They came in, and so I got them. We got all these like all you could drink. It was an all you can drink, uh, ticket where you had like all like like seven different dance rooms and all this nonsense and everything else attached to it, right? It's one of those nights, and. We had we had a big group and uh, trying to get back. Obviously, we added more people to the group as well. And so trying to get back to the apartment was an absolute mess. And it was like one thirty, two o'clock. We drank a ton. 
We were, again, we, we were trying to get as many people as we possibly can to kind of like keep the party going back and do all that stuff. And, and I remember paying surge pricing for New Year's Eve on an Uber. It's like a $300 ride. It was insane. And it was halfway through the ride that I realized I was being gouged like crazy expensive. Cause I, you know, you're drunk and you just don't pay attention. You know, it's going to be surge pricing, but you know how ridiculous it was going to be. And I was halfway through and I was like, I'm looking down at the, at the ride at the time and Uber would like tell you what your price was as you were going. And I was like, Oh no, we're at $175 and we're only halfway there. I'm like, how did we get this way? And I just had to bite the bullet. And then a buddy of mine threw up in the Uber ride. And that was another $150. And there it was. It's the most expensive Uber ride of my life. I think I paid in total. It was like 450, 500 bucks for the Uber ride. So, so like, I don't want to go to a Wendy's where a burger, because it's in high times, will cost me $27. But if I pull up to an Uber, or excuse me, pull up to a Wendy's, and the drive-through is like seven cars deep, and they have to make a burger $20 in order to get the line down, I'm here for it. But I'll never pay that much money for it. I'll just start eating fast food at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that'll be what I do because I'm cheap about those things. I'm fascinated to see how this goes. High-tech menu boards that are going to able to be updating like prices in real time. So it'll look like when you know, you know when you, you're on your gambling app on your phone and it's updating the live odds, and you're like, oh, it's minus 110. Now it's minus 130. Now it's minus 150. That's what your fast food your fast food boards are going to look like for prices. Oh, as I'm sitting here and making up my mind, it's costing me 20 cents on this cheeseburger. Hey, hurry up with your decision making. Every minute is costing me a nickel. Let's keep this thing going. That'll be fun. All right, two one six four seven four to below ninety two, and definitely a thing that's going to happen. I, there's no doubt in my mind that happens. All right, I want to get to uh, a thought on DTR. What was funny? So I'm, I'm listening to Ken and Anthony this morning, and Ken brings up the idea. That I kind of poo-pooed Dorian Thompson Robinson and what happened in that Steelers game. And I listen, it's not like he was wrong. We definitely had it out about that discussion. And I definitely made the case that Dorian Thompson Robinson didn't show the Browns enough. And I believe that. I'm not backing off of that at all. What I thought was interesting, though, is that Ken made that point in like the 7 o'clock hour. And he referenced the conversation that we had. And he referenced how he still believed in Dorian Thompson Robinson. And then Zach Jackson came on and he said this, and I thought it was funny how the conversation kind of shifted afterwards. Here we go. You know, I, I think there's a chance that they are going to go get Jacoby Brissett and bring him back. Whoa. They have to have a veteran backup quarterback. They have to. So the DTR thing is over. They they lost confidence in him. They or they don't think he's no. that good. No, but any fair, he's a great kid and he made strides. But any fair evaluation of where he is and where the Browns are would say that he can't be your number two quarterback. They learned that last year. Right? Yeah. Come on. He played and he improved, and that's what you want. He was drafted with the thought that he could become the long-term backup and that he would cost nothing for his four years. So they're going to go into this with a quarterback budget, you know, and I don't know who's going to fit it. I don't know if they have that one guy, specifically the one I mentioned, at a certain number that they're going to get. I think the only way Flacco comes back is if they get past that number and then just things move down the road. Now, do I get what they call in the morning show a champion's pose? Do I get a champion's pose on this one? Do I, do I have to send over a gif of, uh, of of Lima doing the champion's pose and putting his arms up in the air? Is that what I Do I get to do that or no? Because you heard Ken in the middle of that. Zach was like, yeah, they found out last year about DTR. And he's like, yep, yep, they did. Huh. I thought we were happy with the Pittsburgh game. I thought we were happy with the Denver game. I thought we were happy with the three games you watched with DTR. I told you last week I wasn't, though. I like that Zach's on the same page I'm at when it comes to DTR. Listen, you had to be better last year, and he wasn't. You got an opportunity. 
you blew it. As a fifth-round pick, you don't get to ride high on being a preseason All-American. Okay, you don't get to ride high on being a practice squad uh, All-American. You got you to actually perform where the games matter the most. And in the games that matter the most, I'm sorry, he wasn't very good. If DTR is the backup, then the moment Deshaun gets injured is the moment that the front office is scrambling to see if a 38-year-old former Super Bowl winner happens to be playing football on his couch. And spoiler alert, there's not a lot of those just hanging around waiting for a phone call. I think the Browns got incredibly lucky. They went shopping in the used DVD bin section. They came out with a pristine copy of Pulp Fiction for 75 cents. They got a great value. Actually, it's more like those people at the Goodwill that find a Scotty Cameron putter. $300 value for like 12 bucks happens once in a lifetime. That's what Joe Flacco was. Getting him off the couch happens once in a lifetime. That is not something you can depend on happening time and time again. It's not realistic to depend on getting something like that again if you go out and get P.J. Walker or if DTR gets injured or if DTR just isn't it. The problem here is that if you enter the season with him as the backup, if Deshaun does get injured, you're going to be scrambling to get somebody to replace DTR. And that scrambling is going to take you a couple weeks. Like Joe Flacco, for instance, could have been ready for that Denver game, but he wasn't. He was signed by the Denver game, but he wasn't ready until the Rams game because you can't just you can't just put him out there. He needed time. He had to go through the different practices. He had to go through getting himself in shape of being on the couch and then getting getting himself back into shape and doing everything else. And like, there's a lot that goes into that. I can't stress enough the importance of the backup quarterback with this Browns team. I think it's wildly important because I don't know exactly what Deshaun Watson is going to be. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. Am I off base when it comes to DTR, or am I am I am I banana slicing this one in the other fairway, or am I hitting it two seventy five up the middle dead straight? You know, you tell me. I feel like for my money, DTR cannot be your number two backup quarterback. When you start the season, he can be the number three. You want him as the break glass in case of emergency, but then also the backup to that? Then okay, fine. I can live with that. He's a fifth-round pick. You don't have to emotionally uh, attach yourself to DTR. You don't have to cry poor for DTR either. He's not supposed to be God's gift to football. He's a fifth-round pick. It is what it is. I don't have to treat him like he's the second coming. I would go as far as saying if we didn't have as many wide receiver needs as we have, I wouldn't hate if they took a quarterback in the second round of this year's draft and decided to stash somebody away that way. Because the, the way that the way that this is going, one of two ways. They're either going to spend money on a Jacoby Brissett, who I think his value will have come down from last year to this year. So maybe it costs you four, three, four, five million dollars to either spend money on Jacoby Brissett the amount of money that you'd like to put towards the defensive side of the ball, or you draft a quarterback, continue to spend nothing, but it costs you a flyer opportunity with a wide receiver. For my money, it's pretty easy. All right, more from Zach Jackson. He talked about the wide receiver issue and, and where this team currently stands. Here we go. They have to upgrade it again. I know what's been said on the record, and they're not bailing on Cedric Tillman, and I'm not, but you have to be realistic about it. What you brought in last year didn't work, and specifically, Elijah Moore didn't work with the guy who's going to be your quarterback, you know, and Tillman showed a little bit, but not a lot, not enough. 
So I would say it's not totally closed, but I would be surprised if they ran on like an A-list guy that everybody knows. I just don't think that's realistic, Mike Evans, for multiple reasons. I think you're more in the Darnell Moonies of the world who got injured and got lost in a shuffle, has produced, has made plays down the field because that's what they need. And then I think you're drafting one in the second or third round, almost undoubtedly. Even if you're saying we're good enough to draft for the best player and even if you're saying it's time for us to draft a defensive lineman who's going to be here for years or even an offensive tackle in the right scenario seems unlikely but probably not out of the equation they're going to add to me 70 percent. i guess is the way i would answer it mid-level experienced veteran receiver and then come back in the draft with um you know a player that maybe isn't even in the plans for the first two months but could eventually you know help you in multiple ways listen that's not great i understand it this is uh this is jack's trying to get into golf and uh and his people like all right you can you can go to the callaway store and pick out whatever you'd like and then and then he comes on back and they're like uh uh, maybe not Callaway. All right, how about the tailor-made section? All right, go to the tailor-made section. All right, go over there. Uh, ooh, ooh, maybe not that. Maybe not that as well. Maybe maybe we need to get you a, you're just starting out. We'll get you a starter set, okay? Let's okay. We're going to get you something else here. Uh, how, how about we, how about we, 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 we ease you into this whole thing. That's, that's basically what happened there. We were talking Mike Evans. We were talking all sorts of really good premier wide receivers. And now I'm having conversations about potentially Curtis Samuel. And now I'm having conversations about all sorts of players that I don't think is going to make that big of a difference. I truthfully don't. And I know it's a, it's a far cry when you talk. I, hell, I would have taken Gabe Davis. I would have been over the moon with Gabe freaking Davis. The conversation's changed. And if this was the John Dorsey era, I would have believed that they were a big push and a big play away. And I think Andrew Barry's got a big push in him. I'm not saying he doesn't. But last year, watching him go out and get Elijah Moore is basically what I think is going to happen again. Not not Elijah Moore, obviously, he's already here, but someone like that. Someone of that ilk. Someone like a Curtis Samuel. Someone like that, that you, you don't necessarily think the world of, has been around for a little bit, can give you some consistent production, but ultimately just is what it is. That's what I think is going to happen, if you made me bet on it. It's going to be an interesting offseason, though, because what we do know is that this team has to get better in a few different areas. Wide receiver is one of them. So if they go drafting for a wide receiver, I am perfectly fine with that. I will not begrudge any part of this front office if they do that. But I, but they haven't shown me that, one, they know how to draft wide receivers because they've taken three straight in the third round each year. And, two, they haven't shown me they know how to develop wide receivers when they draft them either. It's an either-or thing going on here. I don't know which is the problem. Are they drafting the wrong wide receivers, or are they not being able to develop the wide receivers? Because if you're not able to develop them, then I guess it doesn't matter who you draft. You can draft four Jerry Rices. If you can't develop them, then it doesn't really matter. But I don't think Anthony Schwartz was anything close to Jerry Rice, okay? I don't think that was ever really the problem. I think it was an Anthony Schwartz issue. You know, is David Bell God's gift to football? Well, at Purdue, he was all right. He was the Big Ten receiver of the year at a time when Alave and Wilson were both in the Big Ten. He did something right. He came here and just looked like he didn't have a clue. I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. It's going to be really interesting to find out. All right, we come on back to one six four seven four to below 92. I've been thinking about this one for about 24 hours or so. It's a little different. It's not necessarily what you're used to hearing when it comes to Miles Garrett and it comes to Zedaria Smith. But 
I've got a feeling why it might be time for the two sides to separate, the Browns and Zedarius Smith, and why maybe it might be best if he just goes on another direction. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. We'll do that and more. Fan focus coming your way at nine o'clock as well. It's overtime with John of the Beatle here with you on the fan. The the person that uh or Jax, have you ever seen it? The person that like they just put on the back of their car, like uh Venmo Venmo the Bachelorette, you can buy drinks as we're in Vegas or we're in Nashville. It's going to be a great time. It's not just a car. It's every weekend. Oh. It's someone's birthday. They put it on their Snapchat story. They put it on Snapchat? Yeah, Venmo this, buy me a drink. Like it's your friends birthday. do this, right? Because yeah. you see it if you're, you're friends with them on Snapchat? Yeah. What is that's like a That's like worse than a GoFundMe. What is that? I, I, I never do it. <laughs> have, you, have you ever done it? No. Yeah, okay. Not good. once. I would be appalled. That, that, I think, might be the difference between 34-year-olds and 24-year-olds. That's it right there. Like, you're 22. Happy birthday to you. Turned 22 yesterday. Thank you. I'm 34. I feel like there's a lot of similarities that we have in life. You're a mature 22. But that might be one of the differences. Your generation. What Are you Are you Gen X? Is that what that's called? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, your generation's not shy about just asking people for money. My generation's like, you know, this makes you one step removed from being on the street with a cup. Like that's not it's not too far of a difference here. And maybe work for it. Maybe work for it a little bit. I don't know. I'm also an old thirty four sometimes too. I'm I'm very uh I'm thirty four, but sometimes I feel like I give off the the idea and the impression that I'm like I'm basically my dad sometimes. That's that's all that is. And my dad's been gone for twelve years or so. Uh but and by gone I mean I mean he passed away. It's not like he like left me and was like, Hey, I don't want to see you anymore. No, no, no. He's just he's just, you know, passed away. It happens. And, uh, but I, every now and then I'll hear myself and I'll be like, I think I'm just cosplaying as my dad right now is all this is. My dad would have gone on a, he would have gone on an absolute tangent about that. So we'll have something in the fan focus coming up in about 20 minutes, a cousin version of that. Something different that bothered Nick Wilson. We'll have that for you guys coming up. Want to hear from you? 216474 to below 92 on Twitter. There you can find me. I am at Jay Peterlin. All right. I promised a Zadarius Smith theory. And I hope to deliver on it. I don't know that I want him to run it back. Hear me out, though. Hear me out when I say this. Zedaria Smith put up double-digit sack numbers in three out of the previous four years before coming to the Browns. The one year he did, and it's because he got injured and he didn't play the entire year. I think he only played a game in that year. He was a pro bowler in three of those years. Double-digit sack numbers, and it was, the it was I mean, really, he was doing everything in his power to showcase why he deserved to be a Pro Bowler. He comes to the Browns, and, and, and the idea behind him was that the second half, he disappears. That's what everyone in Minnesota kept telling you. Second half of the season, he kind of disappears. He was not the same player as he was in the beginning, whether that's wear and tear, whether he's just tired, whatever it is. Sacks aren't everything. If PFF taught us anything, it's that sacks aren't everything. There's a reason why Miles Garrett can win the Defensive Player of the Year despite having five fewer sacks than T.J. Watt. But if we're using sacks off of his production, and I know that he did more than just sacks, but having five and a half, the noticeable difference for Zedaria Smith, I think, is playing alongside Miles Garrett. I think Miles Garrett's a lot like playing alongside Donovan Mitchell. Where you just have to understand the offense runs through him. With Miles Garrett, that defensive line runs through Miles Garrett. And I, I think what happened in the second year of Jadavion Clowney was never more present than what you saw when Miles Garrett wasn't able to feast the way that he wanted. 
all of a sudden, everything was built for Miles Garrett to have success. And I feel like the Browns did a lot of that this last year. And I'm not saying that's a bad plan. But if you're going for individual success, Jadavion Clowney clearly took a hit by playing backseat and playing Robin to Miles Garrett's Batman. Now, he was still wildly productive, all things considered, but he took a backseat. Miles Garrett got all the success, got all the accolades, got to feast, got his sack numbers up, all that stuff. And whether it's been Olivier Vernon, whether it's been Jadavion Clowney, whether it's been Zadarius Smith, we've watched people come to Cleveland and not look as successful playing alongside Miles Garrett. And I kind of wonder if it's a little bit of like a Darius Donovan type thing as well, where you're just kind of watching the offense go through Donovan and you're like, what, what's happening with Darius? I know it's not bad, but it's not the same as what it was prior to Donovan being here. What if there's a little bit of that going on when it comes to Zadarius Smith? So if Zadarius decides at the end of this season that he wants to go off to a different team, I almost wonder if Miles Garrett just keeps needing to have these like one year rental Robins. He gets to be Batman and you get a guy for one year and you use him and then you send him on their way. So you don't have two years like you did with Jadavion Clowney, where at year two, he tried to become an absolute cancer to the locker room and tried to destroy everything. Just a thought. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. Slater up next. What's up, man? Hey, how are you? How you doing tonight? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. Just got out of the cold tub and uh, on my way home. Cold tub. You ready for golf this weekend? Um, I am actually leaving for Gulf Shores, Alabama, for our spring break trip uh, with the golf team. Alabama. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, oh, that's where you're going this weekend for a little golf event. That's nice. Yeah. You yeah know, uh, if, if Cleveland's going to be down ready. there and... Uh, uh, heading down there and then heading to uh, New Orleans for uh, a TPC Louisiana uh, little um, – that's uh, where they host the Zurich Classic. Uh, we're going to be playing there for a round two. Wow, look at you guys. I, that, that's fun. I never thought about that, being able to, like, travel around for the college golf. I didn't know I didn't know how extensively you guys go, but you guys hit, you guys hit up everywhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a spring break, uh, no competition trip, uh, just to kind of get the – get the wheels turning for the season nice uh but yeah yeah we got uh uh season spring season starts uh march 17th now you, you told jake people put the venmo on the golf bag is that right have you seen that no i haven't heard of that what is that uh so it's uh you know they have their um uh qr code on their venmo just in case you know you want to venmo a guy for some beers uh venmo a guy let's say you make a you know, you bet a couple of shekels on, on a round and, uh, oh, forgot my wallet. Oh, well, here's my Venmo. You can just scan my QR code. And it is, uh, yeah, they, and they, I mean, they actually make tags for your, uh, like a bag tag for your golf bag. That's hysterical. I love everything about that. You see, I thought it was, I thought what you're going to tell me because you're in the college golf world is that they, they put the Venmo tag on there so that, cause you know, a lot of the, a lot of the golfers ended up getting funded by these really rich people. I didn't know if like you just went up to the bag and then it's like, I want to be, I want to be a supporter of your golf career. Let me go ahead and this is how I do this. I love that. I love your, I like why you say it happens way more than that. People are just out here gambling, and they're like, I'm going to put a Venmo tag out there. You know how cocky that is to put a Venmo tag on a golf bag? It's playing with the assumption that you're going to win their money. Right, and you don't want to play against that guy. Never. If they got their Venmo on their golf bag, I'm turning away because I'm, I'm convinced they're going to be they, – they've done this a time or two. They've done this way too many times that I'm not going to win against this guy. 
I am. I would gladly play alongside them, but I will strongly and firmly tell them no to whatever bet that they want to make. Yeah. All right, Slater. Enjoy the tournaments, man. Yeah, appreciate you. Appreciate you. That's interesting. Wow. I mean, wouldn't that just scream, I'm a hustler? Wouldn't it? Like, I, so when I was like, growing up, I was, you know, I was a very good bowler growing up. And I, that's what we did on the weekends. Me and my buddies, we would go and we would hustle in bowling because I was a 15 year old that averaged way higher than the men averaged. And so it was easy. It wasn't hard. The only hard part of hustling and bowling is that, and when you're, again, when you're 15 or 16, it's not terribly hard because they don't, they think any good game you have is the only good game you ever have. They don't think you're as good as you are, and so it was never difficult. It was more difficult finding alleys that didn't know who I was than it was anything else, right? So i just go to these alleys, me and my buddies. We'd go Friday, Saturday nights, and we would just hustle people in bowling. But the idea with hustling is that you had to, you had to seem worse than you were. So, like, like part of the hustle was doing really stupid things like renting rental shoes at the counter to make it seem like maybe you don't know exactly what's going on here and then or showing up with just one bowling ball instead of the seven that I typically had and just being like I'll just beat him with one tonight it's fine and I'll use that I'll flatten out my wrist and I'll be able to use that as my spare ball as well and it's really not a big deal like but that was part of the hustle is that you had to make it seem like every good game you had was basically just an accident until they bet you a high enough money that you could just wipe the floor with them and it wasn't a big deal but, like, you did everything in your powers to disguise the idea that you were awesome. Putting a Venmo QR code on your golf bag screams, I'm going to take your money, and this is a bad bet. It feels like the type of move that I would want to make in trying to make it seem like I'm a hustler when I'm nowhere close to being a hustler. I don't know if I love that development at all. I do think it'd be fun if you were a... If you are like trying to cut it in the college golf world and then you go into like the, all the amateur and the Q school type stuff and you're trying to go on the mini tours and that stuff's so expensive. It's just, it's ridiculously expensive and all those guys, if they go a certain amount away, they all end up getting funded by somebody that is way, way wealthier than all of us. And so ultimately what happens is you gotta, you gotta find the connections that way. I thought he was going to say that like all these college kids put the Venmo on their golf bag so that you could like, I don't know. Buy them a bunch of Pro V1s or something and, and kind of fund their golf journey in some sort of fun way. Uh, I, something like that, but what a cocky move. I've never wanted to do something more in my life. I need a Venmo golf tag. Like, I've no, I need air to breathe. Sounds fantastic. Jax, would you like that as a gift? Have yeah, I got I'll you, I got I'll you a, a Ven, your Venmo on a golf tag? I'll take one. You never know what someone... Someone might surprise you one day. And then they see you, and you've only been playing golf for a year, yeah. and they're like, this hustler, how dare he? He's hustling me. And then it just turns out that, like, no, you've just been playing for a year. That's all that is. I think they would I think they would figure it out. I think golf is a much harder sport to hustle. When I, when I was a bowling hustler, it really was like you when you see white men can't jump, and you know the line from Billy Hoyle? Like, it is so hard making something so pretty look so ugly. Like, that's basically what it is. Like, he had to try to make himself look like a chump. He's like, you know how hard it is to make me look like a chump? Yeah. yeah. That's basically what it is. You got to make yourself look like a chump. I can't wait to be good enough to golf hustle. That'll be the I would love that day. 
I, I do think I've, I've made strides in the previous couple months. You know, my guy Jeff over there at Golf Tech has helped me out a lot. I feel like I've made strides in the previous few months. I do feel like my handicap is not where it actually should be right now. And I feel like the first couple months of the, of the, the golf year coming up here, I'm going to have an opportunity to take some dollars off some friends. There's no doubt about that one. All right. Leave that there. We come on back. We got the fan focus. We'll get to the Cavs when they wrap up against the Mavs as well. It's overtime with Jonathan Peterwin here with you on the fan.